0: Just uh, glad that you're here to worship and uh, hear from the Lord this morning. I'll say that this has been a uh, really full weekend. Um, Yesterday we had the privilege to drive down to Elmira and take in the graveside service and then drive to Cooley Dam and take in the uh, memorial service of Sandy Stone. If you didn't know who Sandy Stone was, I'll give you just a little, a little background of who Sandy Stone was. When this church was first, church <clears throat> first started, and it didn't start here, by the way. It started in Addy. It started with kind of a dream and a vision uh, of Don and Mavis Bowe. It started really out of a home fellowship uh, and and Bible study that they were having at the time, uh, back in the early eighties, uh, around 1980, 81 and um, God really put on Donna Mavis's heart to start a church. And they started that fellowship at the Grange at the other end of Main Street in Addy. Now, if you were like me and you grew up in this area, and you grew up in, in especially uh, this little area, uh, every Saturday night at the Grange in Addy was a rip-roaring dance. And uh they were a little on the wild side. Now, I was just a little kid at the time, but I remember going. I went with my folks. Uh, a local band would usually play as actually our neighbors, the Trons. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, there was a lot of fun that was had, a lot of dancing that was had inside. And there was a lot of drinking that was had on the outside in the parking lot. And if you talk to Donna Mavis at all, or Dan and Sandy Stone, uh, Dan now, of course, but uh, they will tell you that they spent a lot of early Sunday mornings cleaning up the uh, beer cans and the beer bottles in the parking lot, kind of cleaning up that old grange to have a service in the early morning on Sunday. But uh, Dan and Sandy were asked to come and be the first youth pastors here at New Life Christian Center way back then. And uh, I'll tell you the story of my first encounter with Dan Stone another time, but his wife Sandy was just absolutely a gem. Absolutely, a gem. They said, and and she was an OB nurse. She worked in Colville, Chuela. Uh At the end of her career, she worked there in, in uh, the hospital there in Cooley Dam. But they estimate and this is just an estimate, uh, that they estimate that Sandy had been in on over eight hundred baby deliveries in her career, uh, and so there might be there might be several of you in this room that uh, oh we have one over here. We also have one over here. She was uh, there when Michaela was born, and so she leaves quite a legacy. Uh, Sandy does, and of course the whole Stone family. And it was just a wonderful event. Um, it was a great tribute, um, and just uh, just a wonderful day. I, I was just really, really blessed and, and blown away. I think that Dennis and I estimated what did we think there was four to five hundred people there probably, easy between the, especially between the two services. And um, I had texted Dan this the day that Sandy passed away, uh, or the day after, actually, and just encouraging him, told him we were praying for him as a church, and Tammy and I were supporting them as, as a couple and however we could help them. But I, I just left him with this. My thoughts of Sandy is, is that her example of what a godly wife and a woman was has impacted generations. And we receive that blessing. There's many of you that, that went to church here that know her. There's a lot of you maybe that don't. But you, even if you didn't know her, you're the beneficiary. You're the beneficiary in some way here at Addie, of the of the, the fingerprints of Sandy Stone, and uh, I just uh, just encourage you to bear that in mind. A wonderful family. Um, that's not what today's sermon is on. Actually, at the very end, I'm going to tie it back in there, though, in kind of an interesting way. We've started kind of a new topical series here for the next month or so based around this question, how do we thrive in a decaying culture? How do we thrive in a decaying culture? And last week, we looked at the uh, story of Noah and the ark and and all that went with uh, God uh, judging the world and the wickedness that was in the world. Uh, and how far uh, man's heart, it says that, that only evil was on man's heart all the time. That's how, how bad that they, things had gotten in that day. And uh, so we looked at that and how really uh, we see where Noah, how God brought Noah through more than just a global flood. God brought Noah and his family through this cultural decline uh, and decay and he really brought them to safety then. And it's kind of a wonderful picture of how God protects his people. Um, I want to say on the front end, it's easy for me to get kind of get going on the negative. And I don't want to just get going on the negative. Like We're not here to just preach about how bad our culture is or how bad the world is and all of that. Uh, it, it's easy for me to do that. And, and, and if you come away with that, um, that's on me. I'll own that. I want to say this, though, is that we want to really emphasize... The key moments where God is at work in a storyline, because even though that they're tough moments, and even though they're in the midst of chaos and decline or decay in a culture, there's key moments where God is at work, and that's to me that's what's so exciting, that's what's so uh, inspiring, that's what builds hope, that's what that's what increases our faith, is when we saw when we see. And as we read through the Word of God, as you share your story with people around you or with one another, where we see God's key moments of working in your life, even though it's hard, and maybe especially because it's hard. Because key moments that, where things are going great is kind of like, well, we get used to that being normal. But when we have key moments, or with people that we read in the Bible about, when they have key moments where God is really at work, especially because it's hard, that's what we want to focus on. And it changes our perspective when we see God working in those details. Uh, years ago, years ago, it was actually Barry started this little phrase. I don't know where Barry went. Maybe he went downstairs. Oh, there he is. Uh, Barry, and this phrase has kind of stuck with me for a long time. I don't know, It's maybe five, six, seven years ago, Barry. But Barry said this in a meeting one time. He says, we need to really be looking for the things that only God can do. And I thought that was such an appropriate phrase, kind of looking at this series. What are the things that only God can accomplish in the storyline? Not what people can accomplish, but what are the things that God does? What, what, where are those things at, and, and how do they play out? What do they look like? What is God doing in that? Today we're going to look at a person, Our person of interest, had a really interesting life in a lot of ways, and he had a ton of key moments that God was at work. His life story takes up 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. 13 chapters. It's really kind of a long story. There's only one chapter. It's actually the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. Out of that, there's one chapter that's not about him. It is important to the storyline in the bigger scheme of things. But he takes up 13 chapters. He was his father's favorite and his brother's least favorite. He was a self-absorbed teenager I don't have a clue what that's like. I was a pretty self-absorbed teenager. In fact, I tell Tammy, I had an opportunity to go to the same school, college that Tammy went to, and uh, we kind of joke about it now, but I tell everybody, if she would have met me then instead of several years later, she would have want nothing to do with me. Uh, it was in the in-between that God uh, really got a hold of my heart. This guy was a self-absorbed teenager. Uh, he was a victim of human trafficking. He was an ex-con. Sounds, man, this is pretty bad. What's this guy's story? Uh, he, had a, he had a story. Usually, usually you say it's a regs to riches story, but this guy's story was a riches to regs to riches to regs to riches story. That's how I wrote it down in my notes with little dots in between all of those phrases. Uh, who am I talking about? Anybody know? Yeah, we're talking about Joseph. We're talking about Joseph in Genesis chapter 38. Actually, starting 37. Um, I was talking with Tim a little bit uh, earlier this weekend, and uh, he brought up this interesting point. He says, Joseph is the most complete, uh, complete typological Christ. That's in quotations. Typological Christ in the Old Testament. In other words, a type of, a type of Christ. In other words, you see a lot of the same similarities, uh, and he's probably the most complete typological Christ in the Old Testament. What am I talking about? Well, he was the favorite son. He was despised by his brothers. He was sent to a foreign land. He was falsely accused. He rose up to provide a rescue for his betrayers. He forgave those that sold him into slavery. And the very last point on that is that he understood the bigger picture. Joseph understood the bigger picture. Uh, all of those things can really be overlaid of what we know of Jesus. Now, I will say and edit the first one. Uh, Jesus is not God's favorite son. He's his only son. That would probably be the only uh, discrepancy in that. Uh, but Joseph really gives us a a really a great picture of the... Uh, at that point in the storyline of the coming Messiah. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to dive in and and look at at how (coughs) uh, some key points, I just got three points, on how we can thrive in a decaying culture. And no doubt Joseph, if you know the storyline at all, uh, he had a multitude of decaying cultures. Let's look at the first one, Genesis 37. We'll just read 11 verses here. It says, Now Jace, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And this is the story of Jacob. It's the story of Jacob, but then uh, it goes right into talking about Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the, <clears throat> and the lad was with the sons of Belilah and the sons of Zipha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to his father. Now, <clears throat> these were his half-brothers, these were his half-brothers. If you go backwards in, in Genesis, you will see that uh, Jacob had Joseph's father had a multitude of wives, and out of that multitude of wives had a multitude of kids. Um, the majority of them were all whole siblings. Uh, the last few were not. They were from a different mother. I won't get into all that whole story. But anyway, it says there in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. And he also made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they had hated him even more so that he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. Here's the arrogance part. (coughs) There were, there we were. Binding sheaves in the field, then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Uh, Pretty straightforward. Pretty arrogant. Verse 8 says, And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Um, The culture... The culture we're talking about in this scenario, in the early life of Joseph, is the culture of Jacob's home. The culture of Jacob's home. It was a mess. As I mentioned earlier, he had multiple wives, he had uh, a plethora of kids, uh, there was division all the way through. If you know the story of Jacob himself, uh, Jacob was, his name means deceiver, and Jacob's whole life was just this mad scramble of disaster. Disaster right? And uh, he did have an encounter eventually with God. And at that point in the story, you really see a change in Jacob himself. When he wrestles with God uh, and God strikes his hip and he ends up then forever having an infirmity, uh, God got his attention. And you really see from that point forward that uh, Jacob starts to change. But in a lot of ways, the culture of the home was kind of already set. And there's a lot that goes with that. It's a fascinating read. I encourage anybody to read all the way through the whole thing. But there, the, the thing that was really toxic in the home was the favoritism. The favoritism. There was a special son, a special gift, and a special gifting. The special son, of course, was Joseph, the Bible says. The special gift was this fancy coat. And the special gifting was the fact that Joseph was a, he was a dreamer. And he understood his dreams. He could interpret his dreams. And in his youthful arrogance, that got him in hot water with his brothers. That got him in, in, tr- in trouble with his brothers. And in a way, I would say, you could probably say that Jacob kind of set Joseph up for failure because jo- Jacob allowed this hatred and the envy to simmer in his household. I would propose to you, based on what we've just read, that one of the ways families can thrive in a decaying culture that we live in, is deal with your stuff at home. Deal deal with your stuff at home. Deal with your kids at home. This This is what we see Jacob failing to do. If you look at verse 11, it says, he just kept the matter in mind. He was thinking about what had happened. He had rebuked him a little bit there. But he just kept it in mind. He didn't deal with the issues at the dinner table, so to speak. Deal with the hard issues... Of your kids. That's what Jacob failed to do with Joseph. And the animosity between Joseph and his brothers then comes to a climax in Genesis 37 when his brothers uh, <clears throat> sell him into slavery and then he was transported south. Pick it back up and flip to Genesis 39, is where you see that. And like I said, Genesis 38 is kind of a, a standout chapter with a different purpose. Staying focused on Joseph, it says this now in Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an, office, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Verse 2 says, and the Lord was with Joseph and he was success, a successful man and he was in the house of, the, of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand, and so Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of the house of all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Verse 6 says, Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So if you go back to verse chapter 37, you could really see this. Joseph's whole world had fallen apart. Joseph's whole world had fallen apart. The bitter uh, envy and strife that was a part of his uh, immediate family, Had got the better of his half brothers. They scooped him up. They were gonna. Some of them wanted to kill him. They said, "No, let's not kill him." You know. They set up this ruse. You can read through it. And what they did, rather than kill him, is they sold him into slavery. They took his coat and they killed a a goat and and, an animal. Wiped the blood on it. Took it back to Jacob and said, "Hey, we don't know what happened." But Joseph's dead. Here's his coat, blood all over it. Uh, he's a goner. Joseph, in the meantime, his whole world had been turned upside down. His whole, how, how do you survive that? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How would you survive being kidnapped, being, human, being a victim of human trafficking, being sold off into a different culture? You're not prepared for this at all. He had no point of reference when he got to Egypt. I would say he had one point of reference, actually. But culturally, he had no point of reference. He had no idea what to expect, what was going to happen. And this guy, Potiphar, then buys him. And the story, it kind of moves quickly there, just one verse of all that I was just talking about. And verse 2 is where it really starts to turn. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. How do you survive? How do you succeed in a situation that you're not prepared for? How do you, how do you thrive in a culture that, is, that, that, that you're not prepared to grow up in? He's a, he's a little he's a Hebrew teenager. That's all he knows. How do you make that transition when things jump up at you off the page of life and just grab you and drag you in and you're like, whoa, whoa. How, how, do, you, how do you cope with that? How do you thrive in those environments? You thrive because when the Lord is with you, Anything is possible. When the Lord is with you, anything is possible. That was, that's his one point of reference. It's jo- Joseph's one point of reference in the whole story is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and his dad, Jacob, was with him. That's his point of reference. That's the stake in the ground that he could go back to. Uh, All the while, while he's being transported down, while he's there, while he's serving Potiphar, the things that are to come are even worse. Like the story does not get better here. The story gets worse. God's presence gives his people a distinct advantage in every, every situation. Don't forget that. Whatever situation you're facing, whatever you're, you may face in the future, know this that as a child of God, you have a distinct advantage because of the presence of God in your life. Two quotes by Corey Tenboom. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. The second one, she goes on to say, Every experience God gives us, every person He puts in our lives, is the perfect preparation for the future that only He, that only God can see. See, we get frustrated at times with things that happen. We get frustrated. Hey, let's be honest. We get frustrated with people. You might be frustrated with me. I don't know. Well, maybe I do know. (laughs) But the reality is is that people are frustrating, right? Things are frustrating. Situations are frustrating. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? How how, how, How do we deal with the stressful spots in life? I'll come back to it when the Lord is with us then anything is possible. Maybe we'll say everything is possible. A quick recap of what we just read. When God is with you, when God is with you, this is the story of Joseph's life, Joseph life working for Potiphar. When God's with you, the household is going to know it. Your boss is going to know it. Your coworkers are going to know it. The outside workers are going to know it. Everyone knows it when the Lord is working in somebody's life. There's just something about it. There's just something that's different. People start asking questions. People, yeah, look, look what Potiphar did for in, in, in Joseph's uh, sphere of influence and, and the amount of authority that gave him. He gave him authority over everything except for what he was eating. Like, hey, hey, just didn't care. Whatever, as long as i get something to eat, I'm good to go. Take care of it, Joseph. Like he had that much trust and confidence in the fact that God was with Joseph. The fruit of a life that the Lord is leading comes down to this. They're trustworthy. And Joseph was trustworthy. Trustworthy, I'm going to say, to a fault in a sense. We'll get into that. But he's trustworthy. Look at that verse 6. I'll read it one more time. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know... What he had, except for the bread by which he ate. That means that Joseph was trustworthy. So, what's the catch? Why does it get worse? Rather, I'm going to rephrase that question not what's the catch, but who's the catch. The next little phrase is where the wheels fall off in this story. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good looking kid. Uh, real good-looking Hebrew guy. There's three factors here as we move forward in this storyline uh, in, into this next debacle that are important to note. If you look back in verse 1, <coughs> look back at what it says there in verse 1. Now, Joseph, who'd been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites. When we look at that word officer there, what, what, what do we think? Like, like Moses is explaining who this guy Potiphar is, but in our English language it comes across, he's an officer of the guard. So what, is he a major? Is he a general? Is he a captain? You know, that, those, are the, those are the concepts that we think of in English. That doesn't have anything to do with it. Not at all. The ancient Hebrew word for officer, and this is what makes all of the rest of the story make sense. And uh, let me just say that you guys are getting this fresh off the press because I just came across this this week. Like, this is something that stood out to me in this whole storyline I'd never seen before. But that ancient word officer in the Hebrew language meant eunuch. It meant he was a eunuch. Yeah, everybody's saying, whoa, whoa, that changes things. So Potiphar's a eunuch? Like, I'm assuming everybody here knows what that means. Kids, you can ask your parents on the ride home. There was an issue here. There was an issue here with Potiphar. Now, in the ancient cultures, let me explain why he was a eunuch. Maybe that will help out a little bit. In the ancient cultures, the pharaohs, the kings, you know, um, whoever in whatever kind of kingdom uh, or rule that they had, they would take their top military guys and they would castrate them. And the reason why is, is they wanted their unfettered attention and devotion. They didn't want their top dudes, they didn't want the, he was the commander of the guard, he was the elite of the elite, he led, he led Pharaoh's most uh, horrific and, and, and deadly troops. He was the bodyguard, he was the, uh, what is it called, he was the top of the secret service we would say for the, if it was in the U.S., right? They didn't want them to have divided devotion, They didn't want those guys chasing skirts. They didn't want them, you know, running around being distracted, if you will, with the ladies. I don't know how this all happened, but this guy was already married, as much as we know in the storyline. But he was not, uh, let's just put it this way, a man's man. That led to a lot of problems. The second factor, the second factor that I already mentioned there in verse 6 of 30. Nine is that Joseph was good-looking. He was attractive. And then the next one is what we're going to get into in verse 7. It says, It came to pass that after these things his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. Well, no wonder. Right? She cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Uh, it's a deadly combination of the events of three different people all in the same house. Let's read on. Verse 8 says, But he refused, talking to Joseph, he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, at my, ma- look my master does not know what is, uh, <clears throat> what is with me in the house, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. And there's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept anything back from me but you, because you are his wife. And Joseph asked her this question. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were inside, that she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. The rest of the story, for the sake of time, The fact that we have communion, I'll be brief. Uh, Essentially, Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, then turned the tables on Joseph and falsely accused him of trying to take advantage of her. Drop to verse 20, it says, Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. Of course, he had access to that because he was chief official, and he was there in prison. So the story got way worse for Joseph, for sure. Uh, a couple months ago, we were actually discussing this in our high school, Awana. Pete was leading this discussion amongst, amongst the high schoolers, and uh, I had sat in that week because we were uh, short on guy leaders for whatever reason, and, uh, and uh, I asked him. so they were, the, So the, here's how it went. So the high schoolers were kind of analyzing the whole story and saying, <clears throat> uh, what went sideways here? Like, how could have this been handled better? Was it good? Was it bad? Was Joseph in the right? Was he in the wrong? And uh, Pete was really leading them to really diagnose and, and kind of pull out, tease out the Scriptures and, and really look at it and think critically about it and, uh, and discern the whole thing. I asked him this question. I felt like this was maybe a little shot over the heads, and I think it's good for us today to look at it. On what basis was Joseph calling this infidelity that she wanted, on what basis was he calling it wicked and sinful? Like, what reference point did Joseph have that what she wanted to do was wrong? And the kids kind of looked at it and they thought about it a while. It took them a while to get to the right answer. They didn't have the Ten Commandments then. That came later. There was nothing like... Uh, well, I shouldn't say there was nothing real specific. There was one thing specific in all of the storyline, of from from this point back to creation that God had said. There was only one. There was only one word from God about this whole thing, and Joseph was standing on one principle that he knew came from God. Only one. It wasn't the Ten Commandments. It wasn't because the pastor said it was bad. It wasn't because that was the way he was. Necessarily raised. I mean, his own family had a string of disasters. Uh, It wasn't because it wasn't uh, socially or culturally acceptable. It definitely it was. Here's the one thing: Joseph was operating on the original instructions from God, out of Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four. Joseph's situation was all about marriage stewardship. Noah's situation from last week was about planet stewardship. Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion. Fill the earth. Take care of it. This is your job, mankind. That was kind of Noah's thing from last week. This week, this week, the cultural situation that Joseph finds himself in is what to do about relationships. How do I navigate this this woman, uh, frankly, that can't quit... Bugging me, can't keep her hands off of me. He was standing on one principle, Genesis two twenty four, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It was passed down from one generation to the next, one generation to the next, one generation, squeezed in tight <laughs> to Noah, and then his sons, was this word from the Lord, spread back out then. Through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph says, Hey, this is wrong. This is wicked. This is sinful. He didn't stand around making a pros and cons list. And if he did, his con list would only have Genesis 2.24 as a reference point. Like, And they wouldn't even know that it would, chapter 2, verse 24, because they didn't have... Chapters and verses at that point. They just knew that this was the word of the Lord. That marriage was important. That marriage needed to be honored. But he was following the Lord's instructions. How can we thrive in a decaying marriage culture in our own day? Follow the Lord's instructions. Follow the Lord's instructions. The the irony about this whole part of the story is that Joseph was defending what she wouldn't, her own marriage. Joseph was defending the the very thing that, that she wouldn't even consider to defend. He was defending her marriage. Not even his own. He hadn't even been married. Verse 21 goes on to say, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Now he's in prison for falsely being accused. Now he's a convict. And because Potiphar was the captain of the guard over the Pharaoh's prison, he threw him in Pharaoh's prison, so to speak. So I suppose you would say he was more like a federal convict. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all that was, <clears throat> I think I skipped apart. but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Let's start at verse 21. And he gave him favor, in the sight of the keeper of the prison, there we go. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did, <clears throat> whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Pr- prosper. In this chapter, I think there's. I think I counted. Eight occurrences where it talks about the Lord being with Joseph or the Lord prospering what Joseph was doing or the Lord showed him mercy. All of those, the Lord, Jehovah, was with him. Capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. The Lord was with him. Regardless of what happens when the Lord is with you, you can stand firm on his principles in his ways You can endure the trial. You can endure the false accusations. How did the story end? Well, now Joseph's in prison. I'll give you the quick run through because this chapter, like I said, this story goes clear. And we're going to end in chapter 50, but I'm not going to read all the way to chapter 50. We'll be here till Monday afternoon when everybody needs to get off work. Here's how it ends Joseph's ability to interpret dreams landed him in favor with Pharaoh. The very thing that got him in trouble with his brothers, the very, the very giftedness that God had given him, that got him in this mess along with his loud mouth, that, that kind of you know, put him in hot water with his half-brothers, is the very thing that God used later than to get him out of hot water and out of prison. Joseph's ability to interpret dreams landed him in <clears throat> favor with Pharaoh because the Lord was with Joseph and all that he did prospered. Because of that prosperity, and the prosperity that we see here, and there's a lot more to it, the cupbearer and the baker and all of that, but because of that prosperity, Joseph rose then to second in command of Pharaoh. Sounds similar, right? He did that with Potiphar. Now God's taken him down into the valley, into the, the pit, as it were, and raised him back up to second in command of Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Then Joseph realized a famine was coming. He devised, again, his dream, his ability to dream and interpret dreams kind of played into all this. He devised this plan to store seven years of extra food. Who's got seven years of extra food on hand? Uh, Don't raise your hand. (laughs) But the reality is is that this is what God was... I don't know, maybe we want to know. I mean, things are getting tough if you watch the news, right? I wasn't going to talk about how bad the culture was, (laughs) Doc. His ability, the the giftingness that that, that God gave him put him in a unique position then as as Pharaoh brought him up to be number two in all of Egypt. And being in the number two spot then gave him access to everything in the kingdom. It gave him access to all the wealth, all the resources, all the decision making. And when God showed him, hey, there's going to be seven good years, then there's going to be seven years of zero. I can't fathom what seven years of farming's nothing is like. Like last year for me was bad enough, right? Last year's drought that we had last year, like when it comes to third cutting, I think I had like 11 bales of third cutting. I lose 11 bales on a normal year and can't remember where I put them. And last year we had th- 11 bales of third cutting, Right? So it was bad enough. I can't imagine what seven years of this looks like when it comes to trying to survive and eat. And God gives Joseph this plan. He says, hey, build the storehouses, build the silos. We're going to have seven years of great. Stuff it away, and you guys will be fine. That's kind of Mark's interpretation, his version. The famine that drove, that very famine that came in the last seven years, drove Joseph's family down to Egypt because it was the only place to buy food. You've got to realize geographically, like, that region of Egypt, we think of Egypt, You think, what do you think of? Sand, desert, and scorpions. Like, there's nothing else there. A couple of old pyramids that are falling apart, and uh, what's the goofy person, the, the sphinx? Yeah, it's kind of falling apart. It's all falling apart. And uh, <clears throat> you're thinking, nothing. But actually, there's a region here on the eastern side of Egypt, especially in the northeastern side of part of uh, Egypt, that is like super rich soil. I mean, it's a great, uh, a great agricultural producer in the world, even still is today. But the famine that came drove Joseph's family down to Egypt. They needed to buy food. They didn't recognize who he was. And pick it up in chapter 45 is where Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers. Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers. He's in a foreign culture, a foreign land. He's been there now the majority of his life. How do you survive that? Obviously, if the Lord is with you, the Lord will empower you to survive whatever's coming down the, down the road for you and for I. But the key to surviving in a foreign land, as it were, is finding God's perspective on the big picture. And we see this in three passages at the end of the story for today. Three passages that show Joseph had a godly attitude about the whole situation, that, that, that he got a different perspective of what God was doing, a bigger perspective. Genesis 45, verse 5, gives us a little look into that and there's just one little phrase there that says so much verse 5 says but now <clears throat> he's talking to his brothers he had revealed his identity He said hey I, I, I'm your brother Joseph surprise <laughs> you didn't really like I'm not dead right I'm not dead so here I am and here you are and uh, remember that <laughs> I wonder if he was thinking remember that dream <laughs> you don't have any inclination of that kind of sassiness from Joseph because he says, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. So don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up because of what's happened. And he says this, for God has sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph, was, Joseph now later in life was, was seeing the big picture really clear of what God had done Throughout his, his adult life. Skip to verse 15. You see another clue of what it's like to have reconciled relationships. It says, moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And the, I think it's the NIV says, and they talked freely. They talked freely as brothers. You want to know what a restored relationship looks like? It's when you have God's perspective in the bigger picture. You can see even the things that's happened to you and the terrible things that have happened and all of the false accusations and being sold away and not sex trafficked, but human trafficked into a foreign land as a teenager and all of that that's bad, all of those things that want to keep you with a victim mentality. Joseph doesn't have any of that. And of all of the characters in the Bible... Joseph could have a victim mentality and say, look here, here's the evidence. It's real. And there's none of it with him. No, he hugs on his brothers. He cares for them. He says, don't don't feel guilty about what's happened. Don't be mad at yourself for what's happened. Don't beat yourself up over the things that have happened in the past. Let's sit and speak freely with one another. That's, a, that's to me, a top-shelf uh, uh, indicator that a relationship has really been mended. When two people that have been separated by, by years and by sin and by anger and whatever else and, and grief and all that goes with this storyline, when two people or a multitude of people can come back together and talk freely, then you know that a relationship is been healed really is a great demonstration of that and the last verse i told you i'd give you three verses so verse 5 and 15 out of genesis 45 and then all the way down to verse chapter 50 later on through the story there's a lot of details that i'm kind of glazing over Je- he has joseph has another opportunity to talk to his brothers and he uses this phrase, he, he, he paints this picture for them. But he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. He's not denying what they did, and even the motivations by which they were uh, operating. He says, what, it, you, what you had initially was evil for me. But I'm going to give you a window into the bigger picture that God has. He says, God meant it for good. God meant what you God meant the he took the things that you did in evil and hatred and envy and, and despise and he turned them good. God had nothing but good really at the end of this picture as a family. But as for you you meant it for evil but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Thriving in these unbearable situations is all about discovering what God is doing in the mess. Like, I would encourage you, if you're in the midst of a trial, a tribulation, a difficult season, to turn up your curiosity on God's part. Dial up that curiosity, and, and be curious about what God's doing. So many times this is the crossroad where people are like, nope, I'm done with you, God. Like, you've totally screwed up my whole life. I had this expectation, I had that expectation. The Bible says that all things are going to be great for me. And now it's a mess. And a lot of people turn it off. They turn God off. They, they, They walk away when really what they should be doing, they should be cranking up their curiosity. What's God doing in this? What's God doing in this? We have to resist against the temptation to blame God, and we need to gravitate and grab onto the idea is what is God's meaning in what's going on? What's God doing in what's just happened? And that's where Joseph got to, trusting that God has a bigger plan at work. The story of Joseph's life, and I'm going to interject now, the story of Sandy Stone's life, was really about that. If you know Stan- Sandy's story beyond what I've told you, what I didn't tell you is that this go-around with cancer was her second go-around with cancer. It was her second go-around with cancer, right? And I can say in the, in the few conversations that I had with Sandy over the years that, that she was looking to the Lord and what He's doing in this situation. He, she's, she's fine with what happens. She's really curious of what God's going to do. And is the pastor, pastor Paul is it? I think his name's Pastor Paul. She sat and talked with him shortly after being diagnosed a second time and really outlined for him, these are the things I want shared. These are the things that, that, that I, w- I want you to say." And he's kind of like, whoa whoa I mean, we, we don't even know where this is going to go. I think she had a sense of where this was going to go. And she was starting to make preparations for it. She wanted to have the impact in the last word. and She wanted there to be a party. The Apostle Paul summarized his own unbearable situation with these words from the Lord. And this is where we'll close. And then David will come up and lead us in communion. The worship team can close with the last song. The Apostle Paul summarizing his own situation says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, as he had pled with the Lord to take away an infirmity. We're not told exactly what it is. The euphemism is there that it's a thorn in the flesh. And Paul says, God spoke to him and he says to me in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast about my infirmities <clears throat> that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see that picture in the life of Joseph. That God was with him in the weakness. God's grace was sufficient for Joseph and God's strength made perfect was made perfect in the life of Joseph in all the big picture of and what was going on. And the same thing is true for Sandy. Same thing I think that the family could easily say that God's grace is sufficient for them. Sandy could say her God's grace is sufficient for her to walk through this bout with cancer because God's strength is made perfect in that. Weakness. For when we're weak, then we'll also be strong. That attitude, that sense of God's in control, that sense of regardless of what happens today, tomorrow, in the future, regardless of what happens in our culture, that attitude is how you thrive. That attitude is how God carries you through the storm rather than, just in our own flesh and our own tendencies, our own desires, trying to avoid every storm in life. God carries us through the storm because His grace is sufficient for us. And His power is magnified, it's made perfect, Paul says, in our own weakness as we ride through the storm with Him. David, if you'll come on up and lead us in communion.